What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Uh, put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. So what do we do if we need that extra push over the cliff, Adam? I think we're sunk. Christopher Guest with Rob Reiner's Marty DeBerge taking the comedy to 11 in 1984's This is Spinal Tap, one of the funniest films of that or any year. We'll see how it fares as Josh and I share our top five films of 84. Plus a Sacred Cow review of that year's 21st most popular movie at the box office, James Cameron's The Terminator. That and more. This is where I'm supposed to say I'll be back, right? No, too obvious. Ahead on film spotting. The current film spotting poll, Josh, has Spinal Tap in a best of 84 death match against The Terminator. This week's Sacred Cow Review, arguably two of the most influential films to come out that year, but also films that, maybe surprisingly, didn't make much of an impression on 84 audiences as measured by box office anyway. If you look back at The Terminator, number 21 at the box office that year, it made $38 million, which was about the same as Bachelor Party and Revenge of the Nerds, a lot less than movies like Footloose, Gremlins, or Purple Rain. And it made even less than the year's other high-profile sci-fi films. I know you love Star Trek Three: The Search for Who Spock, doesn't? $76 million, and the sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was 2010, the year we made Contact, which I have not seen, that made $40 million. That is surprising. A yeah. movie no one really talks about anymore. Ever. I don't think it's come up in the entire history of this show, actually, until right now. Spinal Tap, number 117 at the box office in 84. It made less than $5 million. Maybe not a huge surprise. That's more of a cult classic that I think has gained status every year, perhaps, since it came out in 84. Michael McKean was just on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and Colbert had a great story about going to see that in 84 all alone. He was the only one in huh. the theater. Wow. So not big audiences for that one. Everyone came else out. was seeing Meatballs 2 or Cannonball Run 2 or... Oh, man. Oh, man. I can't believe I get to say it. Breaking 2. Electric Boogaloo. Boogaloo. The year's biggest comedies were Ghostbusters, Beverly Hills Cop, Police Academy. All of those did crack the box office top 10. We will have a lot more 84 talk later in the show when we share our top five films of that year. It's part of a recurring segment we do, our year-by-year countdowns. We also got this week a great voicemail from friend of the show, Chris Klemek. He's a D.C.-based critic who's also a regular participant on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour Roundtable. So Chris started sharing some provocative thoughts on last week's show when we reviewed Alien Covenant and our top five alien attacks. He called Covenant diverting but disappointing. He also suggests that, I don't know how you feel about this, Adam, Ridley Scott should belong on a list of the top five directors who have not lived up to their early promise. Hmm. You know, noting that Scott started with the one-two punch of Alien and then Blade Runner, he has gone on to be nominated for an Oscar four times, most recently with 2015's The Martian. So I don't know if that should negate him from such a list. It's, but 
a provocative statement. I yep. will give Scott's Chris that. Scott's very uneven, so I think I think that's worth consideration. Yeah. He did end his voicemail, however, on a rather threatening note. Uh-huh. At least it was threatening to me about what might happen if I didn't show enough appreciation for this week's Sacred Cow review of The Terminator. Let's give that a listen. Here's Chris. I don't know how you guys are going to land on this thing, but I know it's a much better movie than Gremlins is. And Josh Larson, if you treat The Terminator the way you treated Predator... There are a lot of Josh Larsons, I'm sure, in the Chicago phone book, but I will get a copy of the 312 Yellow Pages, and I will just go down the list of all the Josh Larsons until I find you. I can't be bargained with. I can't be reasoned with. I don't feel pity or remorse or fear, and I absolutely will not stop, ever. And if you think I had to look up this speech from the Terminator in order to recite it, you're wrong. Keep up the great work, guys. Tread carefully, Josh Larson. Such anger. That was real anger in that voice. And I won't be your Kyle Reese in this scenario. (laughs) You know, first of all, Chris, it's Larson with an E, Mm -hmm. E E-N, so make note of that when you're going through the phone book. But I don't think you're going to need it. I think we're going to be okay here. I will say that your line reading was more compelling to me than Michael Beans as Kyle Reese. See, you're already getting off to a terrible start. Not a strength of this movie that... Is it a performance? Good actor, very he barely, good performance. barely musters a presence. No, he's so we'll, fantastic. So we'll definitely have to get to that as we do consider this 1984, I think now considered a sci-fi classic. It was Arnold Schwarzenegger's definitive role as this cyborg who is sent back from the future to terminate the mother of the rebellion leader who would try to take down the machines. Did I get that all right? The artificially intelligent machines of the future. I think you made it way more complicated than Cameron did. Hmm. <laughs> we get the idea. Yeah. We remember how this works. We Linda do. Hamilton, of course, as that mother, the aforementioned Michael Bean, as a guy who chases the Terminator back in time as well to protect her. And that's pretty much the main trio in this film. I revisited this, Adam. I think I mentioned on a recent show that it was a couple of years ago, maybe one of the more recent Terminator installments. I watched this again and came out lukewarm to positive on it. So I was curious to see where I would land. I think there are plenty of things that I appreciated overall, and uh, we should start with those. I do think that it deserves its reputation. I'm in favor of the film. I landed into a debate on Letterboxd when I mentioned something how I appreciate T2 more and mm-hmm. this turned into a huge conversation I was not prepared for because I haven't seen T2 in quite a while so I'm mostly going on memory as far as that's concerned but I do think the Terminator takes this idea that we should note Cameron and his co-screenwriter Gail Ann Hurd borrowed pretty heavily from the work of Harlan Ellison but this great idea central idea and what they managed to do with it is turn out this feature-length chase scene that has a primal pull. So for me, you talk about horror movies that have this figure who never stops, just keeps coming, and there's nothing you can do. I think The Terminator does this as well as any horror movie. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that nightmare scenario that it taps into and really does grab you, no matter how many times you've seen it. Some of it does have to do with Schwarzenegger's performance. I think he gets a lot of help. I want to get to... The sound effects in this film and the score in particular, but whatever combination it is, there is a primal pull to this film that does still hold up today. It sounds like you're going to be a little more enthusiastic in your praise, however. (laughs) Well, I think despite all of the praise you just heaped on the movie, I think that I and Chris 
can hear all of the qualifiers in what you are saying about this film and how you maybe just aren't quite as taken with it as some of the rest of us. So I think Chris is coming after you. And Still. I think you need to be prepared for it. But we do have... It's actually Owen, Chris. Yeah, we have some time left in this review. We'll see how things go. I did really enjoy the film, and I have not seen it in its entirety since, I think, around 84. I don't know that I caught it exactly that year. I probably saw it on TV a few years later. Maybe it was HBO. But I would say, first of all, that its legacy at this point suggests that there is something fundamentally sound about what James Cameron is up to here. And I think you very much hit on that in terms of the the primal element of it, the intensity, the chase. All of those qualities make it a really satisfying experience. But I'm thinking of influence as well in terms of on cinema with all of the movies that have followed in its wake that have cribbed from it, whether they're action thrillers or they're science fiction movies specifically or time travel movies specifically, you see it everywhere. And then on pop culture as well with the phrases that we all know. But I remember being struck by Michael Bean's rendition, Josh, of the line, come with me if you want to live, which we all know. We remember that. Even if we've never seen this movie, we've heard that. But there's something about that phrase, watching it in the context of the film this time, where you realize there's nothing overly clever about it. There's nothing overly written even about it. It's just the most effective distillation of what his message is. And that has a certain power to it. And even honestly, the line that Arnold says, of course, as the Terminator at the police station, I'll be back. Watching it this time, I was struck by the fact that I'd always kind of assumed that that was intended to be funny specifically because why would this machine say that to this guy? It was almost like he was pretending to be John McClane in a future Die Hard movie with a catchy line. And then you watch the film and you realize that it actually makes some sense. It's one of these phrases. It's in his head. In that moment, he's trying to act like a human being and he's probably running through 27 different options, and that's one of the lines the machine in his head tells him he can say. Well, it's also, it's setting up the punchline, right? We remember it as the punchline because that's what people say, but the punchline is when he comes flying through through. in his truck. No, that's exactly right, but it's funny. It's just not funny for the reason I thought it was re-watching it, and I think that that entire exchange is quite funny, and that is another strength of this movie in terms of the different blending of genres that we see in the movie. And I'm sure we'll talk about that real quick. I'll acknowledge a couple other cinematic touchstones that did occur to me watching this movie. One of them is how Anton Chigurh-like the Terminator is. You think Hmm. about the lines that Chris gave us there in his voicemail about how the Terminator can't be bargained with, can't be reasoned with, doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. It immediately made me think of the line that Woody Harrelson says, or the exchange that Woody Harrelson has with Josh Brolin's character in No Country for Old Men, where he says, no, you don't understand. You can't make a deal with him. Even if you gave him the money, he'd still kill you. He's a peculiar man. You could even say that he has principles, principles that transcend money or drugs or anything like that. He's not like you. He's not even like me. And there are some similarities in the dearth of words that both the Terminator and Sugar use and in their approach to their jobs, I suppose, or their missions in this case. It also struck me, maybe because we just got done talking about Alien Covenant, that James Cameron, of course, went on with his very next film to make Aliens, which is obviously another movie combining sci-fi and military elements, but it's another woman transforming into a mother, 
you could argue by the end of the film, and another woman trying to survive against a creature that is remarkably good at killing other humans. So this has a long legacy in terms of the effect it had on all of the films that followed it, and I think there is good reason for it, I found, on this rewatch. Well, let's start there with the Linda Hamilton character and how the movie does deal with her as a heroine, as an action heroine. Mm -hmm. My memory was that that occurred much earlier in this film. And I will say I was really disappointed in Hamilton's, I don't want to say her performance. I think she's working with a terrible, terrible script in terms of the dialogue that a lot of these characters are given. I know there are catchphrases we remember, but outside of those, some of this is painful stuff. So I don't want to place it on Hamilton. And she works her way at the very end towards that character we remember in T2. But I'd contend if we didn't get T2, we would not have the sort of respect we talk about in terms of Sarah Connor at all, because this is painful. The first 75% of this movie watching this character with her roommate, when it's with Bean, the stuff that they share with each other. I disagree None completely. of these are characters. They are ticks. She's no. given an iguana. The roommate is given the headphones. And Bean doesn't give us anything. I mean, he's just like, <laughs> he's barely there I, on the screen. I, I can't fathom watching Michael Bean and feeling that about him. He's no, so it's intense all, on screen. It's all the no, time. No, the, the dialogue between them when they're in I that the sewer. Really good. When they're in that sewer. I like it a lot. On, or the, on the tunnel. So, was it John that sent you here? I volunteered. Why? There's a chance to meet the legend. Sarah Connor. Taught her son to fight. Organize. Prepare from when he was a kid. When you were in hiding before the war. You're talking about things that I haven't done yet in the past tense. It's driving me crazy absolutely painful. Neither You'd have of to give me an example of a it. single line that's painful. I, I would can't say remember there, him because he's are, so bland. No, he's really not. This and is an incredibly bland performance, I Adam. disagree. And as Sarah Connor, Linda Hamilton does not live into it as my memory was. It just well, doesn't give her You're giving her the memory of your with. T2 perspective. I that's think a actually, great character in T2. The is. character we get in The Terminator is not compelling at all. Now, I will say what they're doing is setting her up yes, to be exactly. to, to flip that You're switch. missing the whole point no, of the arc. Listen to me. <laughs> The point is that the switch is flipped way too late in this movie. We spend so much time with her as this damsel in distress. That's fine if we want to start there. There is no hint. There's no hint of the Sarah Connor that we get until that epilogue, really. No. A little bit in that final sequence where she's given a chance to do something after Bean has left the scene. Mm -hmm. We get a little bit there, but it really doesn't come into full flower. T2 is almost a corrective of what's happening here in terms no, of the Sarah extension. Connor character. It's an extension. I loved it. I thought that she behaved exactly how you would probably expect someone being given this news. And she's just a character. She's just a person. She's not the Sarah Connor that she comes to be. That is the whole point of seeing but her, we need a hint of her eventually become. No, I don't think you really do. I think that's one of the things that's so great about the movie is that it's a very subtle shift. It's when she finally, Josh, she finally starts to show those elements that are going to make her Sarah Connor. In fact, the lovely little touch, I think, in that 
tunnel or whatever they're in where she applies the bandage to him, where she takes control, oh. where she takes control of the situation and applies the bandage. And he says, a nice a field dress. Scene? You're pointing to a generic wound scene again I, that they I'm, bring I'm pointing nothing to new one to? Example. I'm pointing to one example where it's a glimpse of something she is going to do many times in her future in that moment, not even fully aware of what she's doing. But so none that's of that a hint matters of what's until to come. We, that, none of that matters unless we, this is my point. It doesn't matter until we've already known what is to come. I'm trying to look at this film as an 84 film on its face value. And it has many things to recommend but it Josh, for what's those wrong reasons. with having a the character who is a damsel in distress? There's nothing fundamentally wrong with a character who is not what and she and becomes. And insulting. She's like a dingbat. She's almost like a screwball comedy character, okay. except not funny. Okay. And there is no hint at all. There, there isn't even one little but scene. Why I mean, would the there fact be that a she hint? bandages to make it more interesting, Josh, if to not, see where things if are not going. presented with the trauma and the drama of this, of this situation, she would never realize the future Sarah Connor. That's the whole point of the film. She would never exhibit those elements that make her the Sarah They're Connor. Two different people. It's because she immediately, when she finally accepts, when she finally fully accepts that the story Reese is telling her is true and that she fundamentally believes that she can be that person. It's after she believes it that she starts to become the person. And that's what's so great and so rewarding about her character transformation. I love that it's mostly about perception. It's about her finally just accepting that she can be the thing that she supposedly is going to become. And she becomes it. And I love watching her far before the very end. I love watching her not only taking an active role in the action scene where she's driving the truck. And then when she gets away on her own, I remembered this in my mind as much more of a case of her being someone, and I didn't hold it against the movie necessarily, being the case where it was Reese who did everything to save her at the end of this film. And that isn't the case at all. He actually ends up literally falling by the wayside there. And yeah, she, in the climax. she is the one who has to get him up and has to carry him and save him and that's what i loved about that transformation is that it happened just at the right time for me as opposed to needing to see it earlier i love that element yeah i'm not saying she had to be like wearing military fatigues and part of a militia at the beginning of the film but this is not a transformation it's two completely different characters okay one I quibble that. i have with the movie i should get to the things that I really enjoyed. It is one of <laughs> the first action scenes that is in that great club called Tech Noir. Noir I know Tech, where he lives. Tech Noir. I know where he lives. I've been there. <laughs> and that is masterful. I think the best it is sequence masterful. in the movie, I love the use of the space, the lighting, the strobe lighting of this club, all the fluorescent, very much attention paid in this film to like the fluorescence of the 80s you think about and that's used here in an interesting way and that one moment where he's floating the terminator's floating through the crowd looking and she ducks down i think to pick something up mm -hmm. and her duck reveals him right isn't yeah. that how it plays out i mean this the blocking there and the choreography mm -hmm. that is really an amazing sequence and i think probably the best one in the film the chase scenes most of them have something like that, a little touch where you know you are in the hands of someone who knows what he's doing. I probably could have done with a little less. I had also forgotten how many future battle scenes 
there are, and I don't think that those always you have mean three of them. Josh? Quite the yeah, and they go on for a long time. Well, I, I don't feel th- that way. three of them in a in a movie that's under two hours. I mean that that's a significant portion of the film that I'd basically just forgotten about. I mean I don't think they're terrible. I just think it's a little less interesting than what's going on in the present, and they do go yeah. on for a fair amount of time, and they're not quite they're more of like a, a a space action movie maybe than what you're getting in the present which are these really distilled lean yeah. action scenes that work great yeah i disagree with you on that a little bit as well in terms of their effectiveness i guess but i love the fact too that it certainly never hit me when i was 10 or 11 watching this film that cameron has a nice little in joke there at the audience when he puts them in a club called tech noir which is naturally what this film ends up being. Even before that moment, though, you recognize that the L.A. that Cameron shows here, especially at night, and most of this movie does take place at night, just like a noir would, is something out of the grittiest, grimiest noir films that I can think of. And the streets have this metallic sheen to them that suggests a world maybe, and I could be reaching here, but it did for me, suggest a world not far off from the machine-dominated future that we saw at the very beginning of the film. And I don't know if that's what he was necessarily alluding to, that that this is imminent. This is, this is a world we're already kind of living in. And you joke about the headphones, again, potentially a reach. Think about the fun camera that would have now with something like the ubiquity of iPhones and Android phones. But I wondered if it was a little bit of commentary even that that character, the roommate, was constantly attached to that electronic device, her uh, Walkman. You're giving but it a lot of credit there. Perhaps. I but think that I, was I think her this, single character trait. Perhaps, but I think this movie deserves a lot of credit. And one of the reasons it does is, like its main villain, it's a very efficient movie as far as I'm concerned. The entire time travel element, as inherently paradoxical as it may in fact be, is ridiculously simple. It doesn't dwell on it. It just gives it to us and we buy it. The goal here is clearly not to wow audiences with its understanding of the laws of nature or quantum physics or to subvert our understanding of those things in really clever or interesting ways. It's about a woman and a man trying to stay alive while a literal killing machine chases them. That's all you need. I think it really effectively as well doles out the information backstory elements, character elements, just as much as it's needed. And a big part of that for me actually are those flashback scenes, which I think all total probably take up about 10 minutes in the movie, 8 to 10 minutes. I think they're really functional. I think the opening one is is obviously to establish the world they're coming from. Crucial. And that we're heading towards. But the second one where I think he kind of dozes off in a car and it's kind of a, a nightmare memory, but it establishes his skill and his resilience as a soldier. That's the fundamental point of that scene, which I think is important, too, for us to understand that he isn't just some other human who was sent back from this time, but he is someone who has a chance against this Terminator. Because all I'm thinking as I'm watching the Terminator mow people down and do these superhuman things is how is this guy going to help keep her alive. That flashback helps me understand that. And then the one big one we get, I think it's the longest one, is that underground scene, which establishes his connection to Sarah Connor. Another thing I'd completely forgotten about with the film, and it sounds like, Josh, I'm not going to convince you of this, and that's fine, because I believe it anyway, but I was prepared to not buy their sleeping together. And I bought it. And I bought it completely, Josh. I bought it because of their relationship, because of their connection to each other, but also because of that flashback scene setting up the fact that he didn't just come here on a mission. He came here because of his feelings 
for her. And, and I that was not, powerful. I am not questioning the structure or the logic of this. I think it's it's locked down. It's tight. It's the execution. There is no chemistry between these two main leads. I think both performances are fairly bland. And that sex scene is like the definitive laughable well, 80s okay. sex scene. I'll because, give you that. Because but the of, actual sex scene itself, not everything that leads up to it. Well, yes, exactly. That's part of the problem is because there's nothing there to justify it. It's like it was justified now for me. it's going to this is what we're going to have. We're going to draw. I mean, it's like it's. Trademark the scene itself with all of the sexy, but because the grabbing of the sheets is is bad. I mean, I think there's more close up grabbing of the fingers than there are battle scenes in the future. (laughs) I think there are too. I'll give you that. I'll give you that that's okay, but but I'm not just saying that that's a cheesy scene. Part of its cheesiness is because there is not that emotional connection between these two building up to it to even let us be on their side. Wow, you're you're okay, you're truly a tough audience, Josh. If this Adam, that is a terrible scene. Are you telling me that? Terminator make you is like that. this perfect movie. All I'm doing no, is pointing I'm out a few flaws. No, I'm not. But I'm saying that. I'm saying that 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 really the whole movie would fundamentally break down if you didn't buy that, and it didn't fundamentally break down for me. That's probably why I didn't have quite as great of an experience because I was not on board with that whole element of the movie. Now mm. I want to go back to something you were saying about time travel because here's something I did like, and I have to keep inserting here things that I like Good so luck. I'm not mischaracterized. The time travel appearances between these two, I like how they handled both of those. So that Schwarzenegger comes, they're both <laughs> naked, right? Schwarzenegger comes and it's just like, this well, was this what is one he of my was big questions, actually. to do. He was meant to be sent back and everything is ready to go. Bean comes through. Reese comes through and he's like also naked, but it's so, so which allows this great comparison between their physiques, yes. right? Yeah. Which is perfect. And also like he barely survived. Right. This transfer. But why? <laughs> but that's because, my question. Is because why does he have the worst time ever after he's arrival? Because he's, no, that's, that's exactly the reason because okay. he's completely human. No, but so he's it immediately, okay, except. I think he even talks about that, but right? But the situation Yes, no, physically. But I'm saying in terms of actually once things get moving, when Arnold Schwarzenegger lands, the worst thing he faces is Bill Paxton actually playing one of those punks. Right, yeah, yeah. And two other guys, basically these punks who aren't any threat at all, give him some grief and he has to kill them in a gruesome way. The moment Reese arrives... The police are after him. Right, He's right. running through all these places. Well, like, I think, you know, why did he land in the wrong spot? Is is that the machines figured that out, too? I, probably I don't know. For, for the film's purposes, let's just say it's stacking the deck, right? So that the Terminator <laughs> looks invincible yeah, and Reese I looks suppose. vulnerable. I mean, it works that way. I, I do. I think that police chase is one that does go on a little a little long, yeah. too. Um, but, yeah. OK, let's let's keep arguing here, because here's another thing that I was surprised didn't hold up that well were some. And I emphasize Mm -hmm. some of the special effects. Stan Winston working here, and it pains me to criticize anything he does because a legendary career and much of his work I've really appreciated. I think the problem here is that there's a huge gap between the effects on Schwarzenegger that we see, the makeup and those sorts of things, and the animatronics, and the purely animatronic head of the Terminator that we get a fair amount. It's not like just one throwaway shot. the whole body and chasing them. Yeah. I, well, at the very end, now, where it's more like stop-motion Harryhausen-esque, yeah. I liked that. You like that? Even I though that that's totally distracting. It's, well, it didn't distract me because the gap is meant to be big there because we're now down to the skeleton of the His Terminator. His elemental frame. And, exactly. And he's different. And so it's there's no uncanny valley. We've, like, leapt over it. But those moments where we cut 
from Schwarzenegger's actual face to this animatronic head, I'm assuming is what it is. It's not Schwarzenegger. Um, that's just, it's almost like they're too close hmm. and the effects don't quite get us there. Huh. I don't ever recall having an issue with the shots of Schwarzenegger's face. I kind of liked all those scenes actually with him working on himself and the yeah, when eye it's popping him, it's, out. When it's him, yeah. it's fine. Right. So we agree on that. I wanted to argue with you about this and I came prepared only insofar as this is the bad thing about Letterboxd and Twitter and all these things is you post your reviews ahead of time and then I will occasionally see snippets and I'll start drawing conclusions about things you said and I happen to check Letterboxd at the exact moment or at least in my feed when our friend Brett Merriman was responding to mm. you defending Stan Winston and the effects. And I didn't want to read it because I hadn't rewatched Terminator oh, yet, but okay. it's, it's the top thing in my feed. And of course, I'm really curious. What are Brett and Josh arguing about? So I get a little taste of what you guys are arguing about. And I'm like, okay, I cannot wait to watch this film <laughs> and think that the effects are pretty awesome uh-huh. for 1984 and never think And some of them are. Yes, say, some, of, some them are, of them are. Some of them are. What I will say is I really wish that they had just gotten rid of Anything involving the color blue. And I say that because every moment that there are those lightning crashes, the electricity around them, or the laser blasts in the future, those take you out of the moment in a way none of the other effects really do, at least for me, until the end of the film when you're talking about the Harryhausen kind of stop motion stuff. That is very distracting for me. So I get it, and I see how even rewatching it now and acknowledging and accepting that it's 1984 well, right. and it's on That's a really low budget. You can't help but watch it and in those moments be struck by it. Overall, for me, I, I don't think the effects are really an issue. I don't think they matter for the same reason dated effects don't matter in lots of really good old movies because you can overlook them when the characters and the story are compelling and when the stakes are high. And that's what I was invested in here all the time. Of course, if you're not as invested in that, maybe those effects are going to have a bigger impact on you. Well, no, you know, for me, it's not... uh... You mentioned the word dated, and I, I'm willing to forgive. I don't even know if you need to forgive that when I'm recognizing this was the best available at the time. And I think the electric, the electricity effects you're talking about, I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. They immediately place you in an era, but that's okay because they're good for that era. Yes. So for me, it was I think it was more that animatronic head because no matter what era, that just wasn't working for me. It was mm-hmm. like, I'm watching Arnold, I'm watching a head. I'm watching Arnold. And then that kind of took me out of it. And then you start, then what happens is you start saying, okay, now which one is this? The next time he appears, that's what you're looking for. You're no longer just worried about the Terminator. Mm. So I think that's where those I'm not sure I know what animatronic head you're talking about. There are scenes where I think it, I think it does start when he's tending to his wounds, if you can call them wounds. But Mm -hmm. I think there's, I think there's some after that where he's even driving. Um, and, and you see, there are just the variations on his head. Again, you know, overall, the effects work, but they're they're uneven. Let's just say they're inconsistent for for what is regarded as an effects breakthrough in a lot of ways. Maybe that's more how people talk about T2. Mm-hmm. And here's another, you know, a hard thing where maybe I need to set T2 aside and say, just look at this as a standalone project. In terms of, you know, the effectiveness of the Terminator, though, you know, Schwarzenegger has the physique. That's really all he needs. Um, he gives those line readings. I think the accent does have a lot to do with that because here's, at least for American audiences, another level of otherness mm-hmm. that we can place upon this figure. Right. Um, so I, I think he's good. Uh, he, he's I think he's much better in T2. I think he's like, again, locked down into what uh, he wants to do there, whereas here it's more feeling through what kind of performance should this be. But this score by Brad Fidel 
has, if you notice, whenever the Terminator is around, it's very repetitive. Mm -hmm. And not only are there metallic elements to it at the very beginning, the Mm -hmm. great opening title sequence, which I love. I do too. That already gets us in the mind of machinery and things clanking together. But the repetitiveness is completely in line with this primal pull I'm talking about, where it's just not going to stop. He's going to keep coming. There's no change. Yeah. And that is also used effectively in that nightclub sequence where the dance music, uh, this is the most subtle thing in the film, when that dance music starts to just fade away as this score, this thrumming score starts building up mm-hmm. until before we even realize it, like, it's not so much that he's on top of us, the music is on top of us. think this is just it's not to take away from the performance at all but it's a case study in if you just took that music out of this film and watched what Schwarzenegger was doing it would be maybe half as effective maybe less completely though that sequence as masterful as it is I couldn't help but think watching it this time how much Schwarzenegger's Terminator reminded me of like Mike Myers from a Halloween movie and I read somewhere that Carpenter and Halloween specifically was a huge influence on Cameron in terms of what you could do with a budget and a similar in some ways, I suppose, type of storyline. But for a guy, I mean, for a machine, Josh, who has been sent from the future with only one job, which is to kill Sarah Connor. And if the machine is successful, then the machines rule for all eternity. He's remarkably deliberate, isn't he? Like, yes. like he, he has no regard for human life at all. And it's not like he just starts shooting at the place. He waits until he can get her right in his sights. And he moves yeah. with that that carefulness. And it's what ultimately allows Reese to intervene. And so it works on sort of a fundamentally cinematic level mm-hmm. in terms of amping up the suspense immensely. But logically, you're watching right, it going, logic. I mean, why didn't, he, why didn't he just blow up the place? I mean, he could have done a million other things to eliminate her in that sequence. I Well, the weapons he had to work with, you know, are just at the gun shop, which is, no, which is a true. great scene. Yeah. But I, and I will also say I was glad to see that he did run in one. I think there's at least one instance where I he paid ran, attention to that. I was, I was, I was like, like, good. Is he really going to be the zombie that yeah, just walks I'm along? Glad, no, he ran. I'm glad you're running. It, the gun shop scene makes me think, too, you know, that I don't think there's a ton of satire here. Uh, not that you necessarily need it. I mean, this is a streamlined right. thing. That's fine. But that gun shop scene, I mean, is there a, is there a better, like, depiction of America. Yeah. How not only where he goes, how easily he's getting a hold of these things, but how it ends. Good for home protection, too, but, the guy and, says. And now there, there's a punchline. Yeah. A really, yeah, a yeah. really harsh punchline. Well, I punch like line. that he starts throwing out weapons that the guy doesn't have and he doesn't even see. He's right. like, oh, no, stick to what's on the shelf. Yeah, <laughs> like right. stuff from the future? I yep. don't know. That's All right. good. The Terminator is currently available to rent on most streaming platforms or on dvd if you see it and agree or disagree with our takes we can't wait to hear the responses feedback at filmspotting.net all right let's stay in the year 1984 for massacre theater that's up next i'm going to try to redeem my truly awful hannibal lecter impersonation i mean talk about blowing a layup when we come back stay with us
All hell! Smells like... Victory! Robert Duvall as Lieutenant Colonel Bill Kilgore in Apocalypse Now. If Apocalypse Now wasn't in the Pantheon, he would certainly be a contender for our list next week as we are planning to share our top five military performances. We'll see if we adjust that name at all, but basically we're thinking of portrayals of people in the military on screen. And should we limit this to maybe like active duty? Like they're actually involved. I mean, this is a big yeah, that's true. topic. So there might be a way to narrow it down a little bit. I don't know. We'll have to talk about that and see what we might be able to come up with. Yeah, we're tying in with War Machine starring Brad Pitt, the new film that opens exclusively on Netflix this weekend. So you will have a chance to see it before we review it on the show. And this is the latest film from director David Michaud, who gave us Animal Kingdom and The Rover, a movie we split on Josh. And I will just go ahead and throw it out here now that we will make sure by next week's show, when we're reviewing his movie, that we will confirm the pronunciation of his last name. Because I swear that someone from Australia who actually works with his production team or something emailed us at one point and told us the correct way to say it. Which I believe was Michaud. I, I think, feel like it's not. You need to get I out think the, it's pronunciation the, film guide. the film spotting pronunciation guide. guide. This is exactly what it's for, Adam. Is denouement on there? Uh, I'm adding it as we speak. <laughs> All right. We want to know your picks, your favorite military performances. Send us an MP3 file, feedback at filmspotting.net, or leave us a voicemail. The number is 312-264-0744. We will see if we can find some way to limit all the good options here. Next week on the show, we may also get to some can chat. We are very aware that that festival is going on. We'll be wrapped up, I'm pretty sure, by the time we're recording next week's show and whether we have a guest on for a few minutes or just review some of the buzz that came out of can and the films that made the biggest impression, we will have some kind of can consideration on the show. We also wanted to spend just a moment as we're taping this today. It was announced earlier that Sir Roger Moore passed away. He was 89 years old. Of course, the third Bond after Sean Connery and George Lazenby. He is my Bond, right? He is exactly. the Bond that our generation discovered first. I was trying to think today, Josh, which would have been my first Bond film. In my mind, it's 1985's A View to a Kill. But as I look at the dates, and I remember watching For Your Eyes Only as a kid. I remember watching Octopussy as a kid. Those were 81 and 83. So whether I saw them after on TBS or whatever other TV station might have been replaying them, as was often the case, or I did see them before A View to a Kill, can't remember. But definitely the only bond I knew for a long time was Roger Moore. Yeah, for me here in Chicago, it'd be on WGN where they'd be playing these Bond movies. I think they do almost like mini festivals or something. So I saw all of these 70s and then 80s ones when I was little. And that's the way it goes with Bond, I think. It's the one you grow up with becomes your Bond. Maybe sometimes regretfully, as I got older and saw the other variations on Bond, I was kind of like, oh, I got the sleazy one. Like, he's yeah. definitely the lounge lizard take sure. on James Bond. Good afternoon. Can I help you? Yes, my name is Bond, James Bond. I'm looking for Dr. Goodhead. You just found her. A woman. But you know what? There's uh, there's just too much nostalgia embedded in those performances. At that time, in that age, he was the epitome of cool for a kid who, you know, thought, man, I'd love to be a spy. He was James Bond. He was James Bond. And it also struck me, too, I think 
and I'll, I'll I'm okay with this. I think this makes me film spotting's Roger Moore, right? So if so if Sam is Connery, <laughs> Maddie was Lazenby well, as, as the third. I don't know who you sure. are in this scenario. No, I, I don't but, either. I'm but I'm what's his name? Uh, Broccoli. I don't know. I'm sure, the producer. There you go. Yeah, at this point, yeah. but I would say Cubby. Isn't that what they called him? Cubby. I think Broccoli. that's what they called him. Yeah. Definitely short shrift to Maddie. I know it's as not someone fair. who was here well, for two hundred episodes, him, but we could also give him the uh, Connery's reappearance, right? Because didn't Connery okay. come back? For one after Lazenby. I think that's right before more. So I don't know. I'll take more. <laughs> Though Maddie, much more like Sean Connery than Sam ever would be. So I don't know. We're going to spend some time on this. Sam and I will discuss it. Yes, we'll come back to do. you with the, the official characterizations. We did also want to acknowledge that, yes, we're very aware that Twin Peaks is airing. On Showtime. So I've heard. Yeah, it's, of course, all over social media. And I'm sure I've talked about my Twin Peaks love here on the show, crept in somehow to a top five, whether it was Fire Walk With Me or I just cheated and put Twin Peaks, the TV series, in the top five. I have not had a chance yet because of preparation for this show to actually watch the new Twin Peaks. But rest assured, I am very much dying to see it. Sarah and I have plans to get to it this week. I was that guy. I didn't watch Twin Peaks originally, but when I got into it, because as was often the case, my friend Matt got me into Twin Peaks. He got me into Lynch. I was a Lynch fan before I really came to Twin Peaks because of Blue Velvet. I then was that guy who freshman year at college, I brought the entire Twin Peaks box set with me and we would have Twin Peaks nights where we would basically just every night of the week watch a couple more episodes as an entire floor. So I got a lot of people into Twin Peaks, a lot of people who I saw on social media, friends of mine, obviously posting about how excited they were for Twin Peaks. I felt good about that, that I had some role there. I needed you on my floor. I confessed on Twitter today. I never watched the original series, so I'm way behind. I think I was late to Lynch in general. I mean, really, maybe until Mulholland Drive was I suddenly digging into some of his past stuff and Mm -hmm. just haven't caught up with Twin Peaks. The conventional wisdom is certainly true that season two, as it is, is not very good. And really everything after you discover who the killer is isn't very good. But everything up until that. Those first 14 or 15 episodes are amazing. I can't wait to find the time at some point to rewatch those. Over at filmspotting.net is where you can participate in our poll questions. And I suppose it would have been nice if timing worked out right to share the results of that poll question here on this show. But we're going to leave them up for one more week. It is a 1984 death match. We're putting this is Spinal Tap versus the Terminator. It is very tight so far. At the 400 vote point, Josh, it was a dead heat. 200 to 200. Well, we got to leave the polls open then. We do. Now, one of them is slightly edging away. I won't say which, but you can vote in that poll. You can comment in that poll. It closes Monday evening, May 29th, and it's right there on the main page of filmspotting.net. Also at our website is where you can see how you might win passes for advanced screenings, often is the case here in Chicago of movies that are coming out or sometimes movies that have come out and you can see it for free during its run of engagement. I'm not going to get into all the details here except to say that 
at some point over this next week, as people are hearing this, Josh, you are going to see at least three or four different giveaways, including for The Hero. This is the movie we talked about during our tease of the Chicago Critics Film Festival, Sam Elliott, the star of that film, The Book of Henry, the latest starring Naomi Watts from director Colin Trevorrow, My Cousin Rachel, which is a romantic period drama slash psychological thriller starring Rachel Weisz and... How about this one? My most anticipated movie of the summer. I think it was your number one as well in terms of our movie questions. The latest from Cresha director Trey Edward Schultz. It comes at night. That one is for passes during its run. They're all opening in the next few weeks here in Chicago. And if you are in the area and you want to see those movies for free, the best thing you can do is just go to filmspotting.net slash events. And while you're there, they should take a survey, right? They should. I think they should. And so far, we haven't had much trouble getting people to take the survey. This is one of those surveys that is actually just for our internal uses. There's no other companies involved or anyone trying to get any marketing information, if you will. It's just for our curiosity, because sometimes behind the scenes here, me, Josh, Sam, we talk about what we should do on an upcoming show or whether we should alter the structure of something. And we often throw out these notions of what we think listeners want without always having or really ever having any data to back it up. It's just going off of our experience and our educated guests. So I thought, why not just make it simple? Throw out two questions that would take no more than two minutes to answer, probably no more than 60 seconds to answer, depending on how much you really had to think about it. Filmspotting.net slash survey. That's it. Filmspotting.net slash survey. And I'll tell you the questions here. We asked you to... Tell us whether or not you think the average episode of film spotting on the radio, only 54 minutes, a breezy 54 minutes, Josh, but the podcast edition of the show, obviously, usually another hour longer than that. Longer. It can be at times. And we were curious if you think the average episode is too long, simply yes or no. You can also share some comments if you choose. And the other one is look at the four kind of main segments that make up most film spotting episodes. Obviously, the reviews top five lists, marathon segments, and interviews, though those are more sporadic, obviously. And we just wanted you to rank them. What are your favorites? What do you really tune in to film spotting for? I can't say the responses to either question so far are surprising us, but still good information to have. And we appreciate everyone who has taken the time. A lot of people have already filled out the survey. We would love it if more people would. And over the coming weeks and months, we'll probably add a couple more questions here and there just to get your feedback. And really, at the end of the day, it's just about trying to make the show better. So it is ultimately trying to serve you. Speaking of serving you... I did not intend. I did not intend this transition, but it'll make sense in a second. It works really well. It's going to work. We get to Massacre Theater. It's the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. A couple weeks back, we massacred this scene. Dr. Lecter. You see, the brain itself feels no pain, Clarice, if that concerns you. For example, Paul won't miss this little piece here, which is the uh, part of the prefrontal lobe, which they say is the seat of good manners. Your profile at the border stations has five features. I'll trade you. Trade? Stop now, and I'll tell you what How they How does are. that word taste you, Clarice? Hmm? Cheap and metallic, like sucking on a greasy coin? Who's Clarice? Agent Starling, Paul, if you can't keep up with the conversation, you better not try to join in at all. Paul, I'm Starling. See. Here. Now, here's the sack that contains the brain. I would really like some more wine. 
That smells great. Yes. Yeah. Let's try I would really like some water. Yes, some awful, awful surf is. going on in that scene with Anthony Hopkins playing Hannibal Lecter, Ray Liotta as well, and Julianne Moore in 2001's Hannibal, written by David Mamet and Steve Zalian. I totally forgot that. Wow. Yeah. The director was Ridley Scott, of course. That massacre was part of a show a couple weeks back when we paid tribute to the work of Jonathan Demi. We did our top five Demi moments or scenes, along with a blind spotting review of Demi's Something Wild. We got this feedback from Julio Oliveira in Austin, Texas. He's the co-host of The Contrarians. Tie-ins, obviously. Hannibal is a sequel to a Jonathan Demi film, and Demi was the focus of the episode. Also in the scene in question, Lecter is getting ready to eat Ray Liotta's brain, and Liotta was in the Demi movie you reviewed. Finally, Julianne Moore's favorite movie is Rachel Getting Married, a Jonathan Demi movie. It's true. Look it up. Did we know that? I don't think we knew that. I think I'd heard it before, but no, definitely was not in my mind. Julio goes on with some acting criticism here. Josh is Hannibal had an uphill battle from the get-go. It's not just that so many performances by other people have cannibalized hee-hee Hopkins' original geniality, and you could argue even Hopkins was coming close to self-parody by the time Red Dragon came around, but it's also that, for anyone who watched the three brilliant seasons of the TV show Hannibal, Mads Mikkelsen is who we think of now when we think of The Good Doctor. And so, Josh's performance falls short on multiple levels. It's no Hopkins, it's no Mikkelsen, and it pales. Next to Adam's Clarice. He's not wrong. <laughs> He's got to be wrong. There's well, no way that's true. Well, I apologize to all for what really, I mean, you think this is just a gimme, right? To do Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter. Pretty hard. Turns out it's pretty hard. Yeah. At, no, least, at least for me. He's uniquely talented. Who knew? <laughs> We heard from Mike Mohammed, who pointed out that Hannibal was directed by Alien Covenant's Ridley Scott, which is the review that we teased on that episode. And also, Hannibal features fine dining and new recipes, much like Blue Apron. Fresh Ray Liotta delivered right to your door. Okay, don't want you to lose that sponsorship. Always enjoy the podcast for your insights, wit, and soul. Film spotting since Superman Returns. Mike. Patrick Najjar from Athens, Georgia, shared this. The film You Fellows Massacred goes to illustrate what a supreme loss the death of Jonathan Demme is. In the hands of Ridley Scott, Hannibal Lecter becomes an explicit monster used almost for sheer shock value. By contrast, in Silence of the Lambs, Demme and Anthony Hopkins imbue Lecter with an undeniable menace, but for most of that film, that menace is masked by a quasi-charming serenity, which ends up being a lot more effective at conveying the danger of the character than Scott's more explicit and visceral version of the character. Also, kudos for Adam doing his best impression of Julianne Moore, doing her best impression of Jodie Foster. <laughs> Is that a compliment? Look at you getting I'll all take this it. praise. Wow, two in a row. Ed Savoy in Harrisonburg, Virginia closes us out. Hannibal does also feature Gary Oldman, star of The Fifth Element, directed by Luke Besson, who's Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets you may yet need to watch. That also came up on the very episode where we massacred the Hannibal scene. It won our poll question of summer movies that look kind of terrible, but might actually be okay. Ed goes on to say that he'd love to continue writing, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Mm -hmm. Deliciously yours, Ed. That means it is now time to reach into the brimming film spotting hat. Pick out this week's winner, Josh. The winner is Jay Becker. He is from Orlando, Florida. Congratulations, Jay. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. This is absurd. My dear young man, don't take it too hard. Your work is ingenious. It's quality work. And there are simply too many notes. That's all. Just cut a few and it'll be perfect. 
Sam with a little production work there, creating a new Massacre Theater intro, a hint potentially of what's to come later in the show as we get to our top five films of 84. And there's no real tie-in between that film, Josh, and the film we're about to massacre beyond the fact that they were both released in 1984. At least that's what I'm going to suggest because I can't think of any other connections. I'm sure our listeners will come up yeah, with there are, others. Yeah, there are plenty that we are unaware of. I have no doubt about that. We will only tell you that for some reason we're changing one of the names, the least obvious or least generic of the two names, just to try to keep all of you cheaters out there from mm-hmm. going straight to Google. Right. You got to see Which if you can remember listeners this. Listeners would never do. No, not, not film Ever. spotting listeners. No, of course not. I'm going to start it off. You give me the action. Now, now, wait a minute. Before we get ahead of ourselves, oh, yeah. we, there are some sound effects. There's some sound effects. Do you want, and, who's doing that? Uh, is Stan Winston available? <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. We need I, some I got, effects. I got some here. I can... Okay. All right. I think this will work. So I'm... The degree of difficulty for me is much higher now. Let's just all acknowledge that. Oh, is it? Because I I am doing sound effects and performance. (laughs) Okay, you're doing all the sound effects or just the ones that pertain to your character? Wow. We really should rehearse this. I suppose. No. I'll do them all. Let's just go. I love it. This is way too much planning already. I love it. And action. Mallory. Alan? Yeah, of course it's Alan. What are you doing, sweetheart? Taking a bath. Ooh. Can I come in? No! What was that? Mallory, are you all right? Everything's fine. Well, then let me in. I'm going to be right there. I'm just changing. Enough is enough, Mallory. Come on, open the door. Something is wrong. Alan, can you make me some pancakes? Make you some... Mallory, uh, all right, Mallory, this is getting scary. You either open up this door or I'm going to break it down. No, Alan, please. All right, that's it. Alan, no, no. Ow. Hi. Hi. Are you okay? Yeah. Well, then why wouldn't you let me in? I was shy. And seen. I mean, I don't know what it says about you as an actor, Josh, that your best performance in the history of this show is the work with inanimate objects. This, this trash can? It's not can. your voice work. It's what you did with well, that trash can. I have more chemistry with this trash can than I have with you. I think that's what that means. You're <laughs> suggesting I'm the Michael Bean in this relationship. Oh. Is that what you're doing? I wouldn't be that cruel. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, I'll say that I don't think I would have gotten this scene until the last line. Mm. then it would have clicked for me. All right. Your deadline is Monday, June 5th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. If you were listening carefully, you could hear Jamie Gum, better known as Buffalo Bill, singing along to that tune, Goodbye Horses by Q Lazarus, memorably used by Jonathan Demme in The Silence of the Lambs. And we don't often get a chance anymore on our shows to fit in some listener feedback, but we did get some wonderful responses to our Jonathan Demme tribute, and we thought we might as well share a little bit of that feedback now, including some more thoughts on that Goodbye Horses scene. Let's start with Andrew Scahill. Hey, guys, I really enjoyed your top five Jonathan Demme moments. He's a director that I know primarily through his dramas, and it was fascinating to hear you all make a compelling case for his empathy and humanism in the comedies and documentaries that I haven't seen. The thought I kept having as I listened, though, is where the silence of the lambs fits into this Demian world. If it's about connection, it seems to be the danger of connection. The therapeutic is likened to dissection, and revealing information about yourself makes you vulnerable and victimized. 
Characters consume and wear people as skin rather than have empathy for them. Is this the nightmare world of Demi, the humanist auteur? A great question. And if I remember correctly from his email, Andrew is a professor, and that's why that email reads a little bit like an essay question he's throwing out on a midterm exam. I would love to see some student wrestle with that. It's just not going to be me right now. Thank you, Andrew. Amos Efrat from Brooklyn, New York, writes in, long time, first time. I had to write in, first of all, to express how great your Demi retrospective was. As a person who's rarely at a loss for words when talking about cinema, you were able to verbalize aspects of Demi's filmmaking, such as his welcoming frame to peripheral characters his humanism, his empathy, and more. That, when it comes to his work, I've had difficulty expressing. His films just hit me on such a visceral, emotional level I have resisted analyzing it too closely, I guess. Anyways, I'm writing to bring up one aspect of the structure of Something Wild, my all-time favorite, that blew me away on my first viewing and continues to reward today. Lulu and Charlie's goofy escape as romance is predicated on one fact that seems to be unacknowledged. Charlie, as far as we and Lulu know, is a married family man, so here's where he gets into some spoiler territory for a film that came out in 1986, we do admit, but we're going to jump ahead a little bit where Amos says, as the truth of Charlie's situation is revealed later in the movie, we get yet another shift in tone, emotion, and general character conception we've seen develop through the film, adding a great kick to the tonal trompe loy that is the world of something wild. P.S. Adam, I happen to have Melvin and Howard on DVD and would be happy to send it to you if you are interested. Anything to get more people to see that amazing film. First of all, Amos is absolutely right that that revelation regarding Charlie Charlie's character is really a fun aspect of this film, particularly the Lulu character's response to it. And it is absolutely goofy and another tonal shift, as he said. In terms of Melvin and Howard, I just might have to take Amos up on that because I am, as I mentioned, really eager to see that film and can't get my hands on it. So, Amos, I might just be sending you the P.O. Box address if you are willing to help a guy out. Do you think you have to send it back to him? Is this a gift? We'll see. Okay. We'll see. We also heard from Joran. He's from Indiana, Pennsylvania. Unless he's just trying to confuse us. <laughs> anyway, Joran says, I just wanted to note a big reference in the film, which is to Pabst's 1927 silent masterpiece Pandora's Box, starring Louise Brooks. Brooks' black bob became an iconic hairstyle, and several directors referenced it over the years. Uma Thurman's character in Pulp Fiction, Anna Karina in Godard's Vivre Savi, and Melanie Griffith's Lulu in Something Wild. This is the most direct homage to Pandora's Box because the main character in that film, played by Brooks, is named Lulu. The film is about the rise and fall of a flirtatious and independent woman who leads on a number of suitors until her, spoiler alert, sudden and surprising murder by Jack the Ripper. So that wig that she is wearing in the film, Lulu... Of course, now that he says it, it makes perfect sense that I at least recall it from Uma Thurman's character in Pulp Fiction. I knew it looked familiar, never quite placed it, and we appreciate the note, Joran. Finally, we hear from Alex in Rogers Park right here in Chicago. Thanks for a great episode recalling the many great scenes of the late Jonathan Demme. It really made me want to go back and watch his more under-the-radar films, particularly Rachel Getting Married, which I haven't seen since it was first released. I do, however, want to address a Demme scene that I felt shocked and disappointed was not mentioned on your program. It is from Silence of the Lambs, which is universally regarded as a cinema classic, and I acknowledge that there are way too many notable scenes in that movie. This one in particular really exemplifies Demi's ability to use music, close-ups, and invoke emotions in the viewer. I'm referring to the scene involving the killer Buffalo Bill when he is dancing nude whilst wearing a suit that he crafted from the skin of his female victims. It gives a glimpse into this character's own psychosis by using the director's trademark close-up shot, and it makes the viewer very uncomfortable yet mesmerized, which is why this movie brilliantly blurs the line between psychological horror film and crime 
crime drama. While the killer is doing this infamous dance, he is playing the song Goodbye Horses, which oddly molds well into the scene. It's intertwined with shots of Buffalo Bill's latest victim planning an escape with the music being audibly heard through his torture chamber. I saw this movie for the first time on late night cable when I was in middle school, and this scene still resonates with me. I can imagine it would in middle school. I can't listen to Goodbye Horses without the Buffalo Bill dance coming to mind. Thank you for hearing me out and keep up the great work. You know, I could have included that too because it fit within the musical moments theme that I had for my list. So. Good point. It sounds like I could have used it for the close-up element and breaking the fourth wall. I did think about it because it's incredibly memorable. You can't shake it once you've seen that. But as noted there, there are so many great scenes from Silence of the Lambs. And ultimately, that opening one is just the biggest stunner for me. But it's a fabulous scene, and we appreciate all the feedback we got. If you ever have feedback on anything we discuss here in the show, again, the email is feedback at filmspotting.net. Well, I hope Chris Klemek is still listening because we're finally going to get to some Gremlins he talk. He stopped listening. He, He's he already on, on his way. The film spotting top five, the best movies of 1984, is next. Stay with us. been a little bit, Josh, since we've had a donation segment, but we do have a couple listeners we wanted to give a shout out to here and share a little bit of their feedback on the show and other matters. We start with Aaron C. in Washington, D.C., who sought out Something Wild because of our Jonathan Demi tribute show. Watching Something Wild for the first time felt like discovering a true gem. Needless to say, the soundtrack provided some great song choices for that show and some really fun discussion. I'm in total agreement with you guys that all three of the leads are great, but Leota really steals the show. I'd still have to say Lambs is my favorite Demi film and one of my favorite films ever, but Something Wild with its exuberant feel, outlandish characters, and highly memorable soundtrack is a strong second. I wonder why no one ever talks about this film. Well, we're trying to rectify that. A new Bucka Show donor, Sonny writes in, just wanted to write in and say thanks so much for the years of great work, doing a Bucka Show donation for my writing partner and dear friend Patrick for his birthday. Happy birthday, Patrick. Both of us have been listening to the show forever, and it never fails to either get us talking in a really meaningful way about movies we've both seen, recommending new movies to each other that have been mentioned on the show, or arguing about which Godfather is better after three or four beers. We love the show. Keep up with the great work, Adam and Josh. After five or six, you start saying Godfather three. <laughs> Maybe. We have three new $5 a month donors, Jose in Pflugerville. I'm going with Pflugerville. I think that's right. Texas. Steven in Austin, Texas, and David in Mato Medi, Minnesota. And David or someone else from that locale has donated before, and I feel like we got a correction on how to say that, and you'll have to correct us again. A new gold-level donor, Thomas Tory, longtime listener of the show, says thanks for the years of film enthusiasm. I don't donate enough, Thomas. It's certainly okay, especially when you are out there putting your money towards making movies. A quick plug here for Thomas's latest film. Hope you guys have been well, Thomas says. You know I've been listening for over 10 years straight, and you were gracious enough to shout out my debut feature film's premiere back in April 2016 at the Newport Beach Film Festival, Fair. 
Fair since went on to pick up top awards at South Bay, Push, Charlotte, and Naples Film Festivals. It was released February 21 on digital platforms from distributor The Orchard. The film also played a limited theatrical run in April. The LA Times, Film Threat, and many others have given it very positive reviews. You can watch a trailer and read press here. That's at fairmovie.com. We'll also post that link in our show notes at filmspotting.net. Congratulations, Thomas, on the success of your movie, and thank you to everybody who donated to the show this week. Morning, officers. What y'all, the second team? We're the first team. Yeah, we're not gonna fall for a banana in the tailpipe. You're not gonna fall for the banana in the tailpipe? <laughs> it should be more natural, brother. It should flow out like this. Look, man, I ain't falling for no banana in my tailpipe. See, that's more natural for us. You've been hanging out with this dude too long. That was Eddie Murphy, of course, in Beverly Hills Cop, 1984's box office champ. It pulled in $234 million during its run. That's $1984. So I think that's like $2 trillion or something today, Josh. I was never good at I economics. Think I think your math is correct. <laughs> I love that movie, and it will come up. I think, in some capacity, whether or not it makes my top five as we get to our lists. We are considering our favorite films from the year 1984, and we're doing this not because it's obviously a milestone-type anniversary, looking back 33 years, but just because it's the next year up in our year-by-year countdowns. We started with the year before film spotting began, which was 2004, because we obviously have done top 10 lists of the best films from 2005 to 2016. We've worked our way back and we've danced around a little bit in the decade of the 80s, but 1984 is indeed up. So, Josh, anything special about how you approach this list in terms of applying any criteria? I definitely tried to use the one I always use for these lists, which is the rules we apply to Film Spotting Madness, to our death matches. Other than these five movies, everything's wiped out. It's just these five movies that are left. We all have to live for the rest of time with just these five films what's left and this is where i, don't know, I came out i don't know why you always have to make it so painful stakes I mean, it has goodness. to be stakes josh these are, these are just top 10 lists we're making here. i did top go five. back i did go back and i counted up every movie i could find from 1984 that i had seen and my count was 58 movies pretty good 58 so i'm actually going to put my entire full ranking of those 58 films on letterboxd and now you're about to destroy 53 of them yeah they're all gone don't you feel great (laughs) for all time but (laughs) if you're curious if you're curious you can find the link to that list on letterboxd in the show notes for this episode at filmspotting.net and please don't sweat the rankings too hard because of course after you get past the first four it's kind of up for grabs. Yeah. I mean, you can tear them, but... The challenge, you know, when we do these years in particular, when we were, you know, formative, just beginning, really intense movie-watching years, I'd say, is to factor in nostalgia. And I'm not saying throw it out, because I think nostalgia has its place, Mm -hmm. but it's also to try to look at those films afresh, at least in some way. Can't revisit them all, so it's not always possible to do that. I mean, that's where Beverly Hills Cop might come in for me. I didn't get to revisit it. We had mentioned in noting the passing of Roger Moore how that was the James Bond we wanted to be as kids. I, I wanted to be Eddie Murphy as a kid as well oh, yeah. because of something like Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, yeah. 48 hours. So, um, so yeah, nostalgia is a tricky thing here. Uh, it's, it's something I do want to factor in, allow for, but not let come 
completely govern my list. Also, you have to catch up with some things you've never seen. And I was able to do that in two instances here. They didn't necessarily crack the top five. And I'm a little sad now that they're going to be destroyed because I actually like them (laughs) quite a bit. But what are we going to do? Well, thanks for taking my game seriously, Josh. I appreciate that. We'll see if I appreciate your list. You're number five. I think you're going to like number five. It's Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. This is one that you have actually had on two previous top five lists, a Hayao Miyazaki film. I haven't listed it yet, so I thought, what better time now? Because Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind is indeed, for me, one of the top five films of 1984. This takes place centuries after a cataclysmic world war has left much of Earth polluted. And I value it so highly because it offers one of Miyazaki's most weirdly, wonderfully built worlds. You have a princess who rides this soaring glider. There are massive mutant insects and then these toxic forests where a lot of the action takes place. It, it reminds me, you know, of some of the imagery we get with the early scenes of Rey in The Force Awakens. I don't know if Nausicaa was an influence on that at all, but uh, that was a connection I saw when I was looking at some of these scenes again. This one, decidedly not a nostalgia pick because I only saw it for the first time a couple of years ago. It might have been when we did our top five Miyazaki characters, as a matter of fact. So I was a little bit late to Nausicaa in comparison to the other Miyazaki films that I had seen. And I think the fact that it hit me so well just speaks to its power because you know what you're going to get from Miyazaki after you've seen a couple, right? This Mm -hmm. wonder, this imagination. So if you've already seen that and you're still taken away into this other place by yet a new film of his, I think that just confirms the imaginative power that it has. So Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, top tier Miyazaki for me. I could be wrong. I'd have to check the dates on those lists, but possible that I hadn't seen that film until we were preparing for our top five Miyazaki scenes when we did that list a few years ago. And yes, I did have a very strong reaction to that film. Not quite going to make my list this time. I know you're not going to be on board with my number five, and I wish I could make a stronger case for it. That doesn't mean it's not going to make the list. And it is for me a very nostalgia-based pick, Josh, though it's not the only nostalgia-based pick on my list. I can't say that because it does factor into my number four as well. But I think only these two and the movie is, in fact, Ghostbusters. Now, I say it's nostalgia-based, but I watched this movie fairly recently. I couldn't find the exact date. And of course, at this age, I lose track of the years. They all blend together. It might have been two years ago, four years ago, six years ago. But I know I sat down sometime in that span with my two oldest kids and we watched Ghostbusters. And guess what? I laughed at all the same things that made me laugh when I was nine and 10. So maybe that says more about me than the movie and how it's aged, but I definitely think that it holds up. I definitely don't think that the jokes are accurately described, I suppose, as juvenile, as much as it appealed to me and my friends at that age. Obviously, it still struck me as quite funny now. I can't answer why it's great. That's why it's at number five. I can't. And maybe if I watched it again right now, something would really strike me. But I'll admit it's not the best buddy movie of the 80s. It's not the best science or paranormal activity movie of the 80s. It's not the best comedy of the 80s. But Josh, it might be the best combination of all of those things. And that has to count for something. I also think that I appreciate how much it plays the comedy straight. There are plenty of scenes and long spans of time in the movie where it is about 
the story. It's about the characters and not about gags. And so many comedies we see these days really are just about getting in as many punchlines and as many laughs as possible. And I think that the laughs are ultimately bigger in this film because of some of the time we get between them and because of some of the character dynamics that we see at play between Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and, of course, Harold Ramis. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Yes. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. For me, this is Bill Murray at the top of his comedic game as Peter Venkman. And the scene that a lot of people point to, perhaps, because it's the most famous line that we're constantly still using most of us today, which is the dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria to describe any chaotic scene. I watched that again today, Josh, and the funniest stuff is actually just watching like when the priest comes in to talk to the mayor and he says, your eminence, and the priest slaps the mayor on the face and Murray and Aykroyd are just in the background, but their expressions are so funny. They're as funny as anything he says in that scene. You really do just have to pay attention to everything they're up to there. So I almost talked myself out of it, but at the end of the day, I can't imagine a world without this film from 1984. Ghostbusters is just one of those seminal movies. Yeah, and for the record, I'm a fan of the film. I mean, when I joked about it being overrated last show, I think that's in reference to its reputation and the recent revisit I did. I watched it as well, probably in preparation for the recent Ghostbusters reboot that we got, watched it with the family and enjoyed a lot of it. But Mm -hmm. this is one where I did set aside the nostalgia a little bit and recognize for me, and this, this is, I hate to say this, like the Murray interaction, he's funny, but he's completely outside of this movie. Just like yeah. t- t- taking his own space. <laughs> I've heard you say and that. And I, I, can't, so I can't comprehend only, that. Like, yeah, I, don't, only, I don't know what that means. The only in, thing that sort of holds me yeah. back from it a little bit. But I am a fan. Honestly, if I were to do a whole top 10, which I didn't sit down to do, it would probably it might be fighting with. Beverly Hills Cop for that 10th comedic slot. I mean, I would just say not to belabor it, but what movie other than some of the Wes Anderson stuff where he's really blending into the ensemble, doesn't Bill Murray exist on a higher plane than everyone else. And I don't mean no, higher it's plane a higher of quality. Plane. It's that I mean, he's making I mean, what his he's own doing. movie. Yeah, he's outside he's of the movie. That. That, well, and that you can, can, say that can be a distraction. Like, I think early on, he was more of a, not, again, that he's not being funny in the particular scene, but is he working in concert with what the movie wants to do? Not quite as much as we've seen that he was capable of doing in some of his later work. I mean, the guy, you know, the guy had to grow in some way, and he absolutely yeah. did grow. So it's just that looking manic back energy, at that though. through uh, a different lens when I wasn't just the kid who thought everything he did on scene was absolutely great and seeing it in terms of how are you performing with other actors? What is the point of this scene that the filmmakers are trying to convey and how does Murray help with that or does he detract from it in some way? And I guess for me it always seems seems consistent with his character and how he stands outside of Ray and Egon a little bit. But I'm glad to hear that you are overall a fan of Ghostbusters. Overall fan. All right, number four, we will agree on. This is Spinal Tap. It was my number one mockumentary moment 
came from this is Spinal Tap when we did that. I think that was episode 527. I picked the band discussing the fate of their drummers. And it was fitting to have this is Spinal Tap as number one because this is the mother of all movie mockumentaries. Just perfected the form. It's also one of those movies, and I remember struggling with it at that point, too. You don't want to just sit around and explain why it's funny, right? You just you kind of want to just quote it <laughs> or reference it. Yeah. So how about we just play a little bit of it? The band's debriefing session after the Stonehenge stage disaster, which is almost as funny as the visual gag of the tiny Stonehenge itself. I do not for one think that the problem was that the band was down. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. All right? That tended to understate the hugeness of the object. I really think you're just making a much too big a thing out of it. Making a big thing out of it would have been a good idea. Nigel gave me a drawing that said 18 inches, all right? I know he did, and that's what now, I'm talking about. he knows the difference between feet and inches is not my problem. I do what I'm told. But you're not as confused as him, are you? I mean, it's not your job to be as confused as Nigel is. It's my job to do what I'm asked to do by the creative element of this band. And that's what I did. The Come audience on. were laughing. So it became a comedy number, right? Yes, it did. Yes, it fucking well did. And it was not pleasant to be part of the comedy on stage. Backstage, perhaps, it was very amusing. Well, maybe we just fix the choreography and keep the dwarf clear. What do you mean? So they won't trod upon it. Now, one legacy of this is Spinal Tap that I do want to mention, and you get a sense of it in this scene, I think, is that, and this is something the best mockumentaries have, but not all of them have. It's what sets the really good ones apart, and I'd include the other ones from Christopher Guest in this, that they're not just improvising funny lines, but they're doing it within the personality of their character. Always. And (laughs) these guys in this film, they do not break from that. I think something... A recent air like What We Do in the Shadows works similarly, right? Which you and I loved probably for that reason. Now, in this Stonehenge bit, it's something as simple as that ashamed look that Christopher Guest as Nigel that he gives when he hears, it's not your job to be as confused as Nigel. You know, that that aside insult, which he's just hearing for the first time, he's not even really part of that interchange he's in character so much that he gives you that little laugh right there and this is spinal tap is just rife with little touches like that the ability to improvise within character it makes all the difference it really does no argument for me there my number four again based in nostalgia because i haven't seen it recently at least not in its entirety and a funny thing about this pick which I'll name in a second, its original ranking on my list of the 58 movies from 1984 that I've seen was number seven. And then as I actually got down to honing the list, I just realized I didn't want to live without this film, and it belonged in the number four spot. It's The Natural, starring Mm -hmm. Robert Redford. And if you look on YouTube, obviously there are lots of clips from a lot of movies, including The Natural, there, but there are eight clips that are pulled out as promotional clips, I suppose, from a DVD release or something of the movie. And I'm just going to name them. The name of the clips, Savoy Special, New Right Fielder, Striking Out the Whammer, Lady in White, Knock the Cover Off the Ball, Let It Ride. If you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about just from those brief phrases. They all have a mythical and mystical component to them that is really powerful. And I think that speaks to the film as a whole. And for me, it's not really about the power of baseball specifically. It's not that. And look, I grew up loving baseball. It was the sport I played. It was the only one I had any talent for whatsoever. And so I have an affection for a lot of baseball movies, whether it's Major League or Field of Dreams or Bull Durham or The Natural. But I think it goes beyond sports. I think that we connect to it 
I connect to The Natural so much because it's a movie where these mystical things matter, where things have meaning, where you make a bat with your dad out of a tree that gets struck by lightning and it has some power, actual power to it. Or you have someone from your past who you had a very strong connection and relationship to, they stand up at a ball game, just them, with everyone else sitting down, and you can't even see them, but you can feel their presence, and they're supporting you when you're slumping, and that has an impact that somehow factors into the situation. And yes, where the good guys win. I think we all want to believe in that kind of world where these types of things matter, and I think we mostly do feel that way. I think we are those type of believers, no matter how rational and otherwise scientific we claim to be. I know I'm very aware. I've read the Malamud story. I know how it's not what the story was, that it takes this more, quote unquote, Hollywood approach because of the happy ending, because of all this mythical, silly stuff, perhaps some would say, that happens in the film. But For me, I'll take it over that story any day of the week. And Josh, the clip I didn't mention in that list that, of course, is on YouTube is just one of the greatest endings ever. The slow-mo pitch and swing, the connection with the ball, sound disappearing except for the faint play-by-play call and the twinkle of the Randy Newman score that builds and then... Ball hits lights, horns come in big... Redford rounding the bases with the lights exploding, sparks cascading like fireworks around him. I'm getting goosebumps just recalling the scene, Josh. That's how good it is. It's magical, and I love that it's magical. The imagery in this film is so powerful when you're dealing with stock footage almost. I mean, how many baseball movies have there been where we see batters awaiting the pitch, yet when you say the natural, I can pick out that specific vision Mm -hmm. and mythical is a good word for it this was caleb deschanel's one of his early films as a cinematographer Ah, look at this look at this run he had here i was just looking this up the black stallion which i love 1979 a thing of beauty then being there which i haven't seen actually but in 83 he made the right stuff and then the natural in 84 i mean how about that two of them back to back yep all right, my number three, let's do it. Let's talk Gremlins, Adam. You scoffed <laughs> you scoffed at Gremlins at the very notion that Gremlins could offer more than silliness, which we remember, craziness, scares, all those good things. So let me assure you that this story, which is essentially about a Christmas gift that goes haywire and destroys a small American town during its most picturesque season, this deserves a place, I think, among the notable 1980s satires about American consumerism. I'd say Trading Places is one of those, something like Brazil a little bit. Sure. And then you'd have to tell me, I think They Live, which I haven't Without seen, works that way as well. So yeah. I think Gremlins falls in that category. You could argue, for instance, that Stripe, the ringleader, the evil gremlin ringleader, personifies this rampant commercialization of the holiday season. So think of the scene where he's hiding in the Christmas tree and you see, I think it's him, that there's a gremlin there. You see the red eyes and it's like suddenly the Christmas tree itself is a monster. And then he goes to the department store of all places at the climax to jump in a fountain and spawn more of himself, more product he's going to put out there. This was directed by noted satirist Joe Dante. He made Small Soldiers a little later, which works quite similarly, actually, and is quite good. I'm going to bring in some support here from noted Dante enthusiast Jonathan Rosenbaum. He wrote about Gremlins. I think this was published in 1985, and he pointed out something that I didn't quite realize but does make sense, that the movie is this commercial enterprise, you know, this Spielberg-produced thing 
on the one hand, but it's also undermining those very notions at the same time. Here's what Rosenbaum wrote. Gremlin conjures up a second movie, diametrically opposed to the first, which delights in assaulting everything the other movie stands for. Christmas, Norman Rockwell's America, Consumer Society, Family Entertainment, and so on. So I think this Gremlins that he's talking about initially, the commercial prospect Gremlins, the Spielberg produced, wants to be a big hit Gremlins. I think that's a fun movie, and I'd like that one. But this alternate Gremlins that the same movie is operating as underneath, Mm -hmm. that's the one that I want to put on the top five list. I think it's that good. Okay. And maybe, of course, just reflecting on it from my past, seeing it in theaters when I was nine years old, I only remember that version of Gremlins. And I see all those elements there. I don't disagree. I think that for me, maybe that consumer satire element comes through stronger and more potently for me in a movie that obviously doesn't have as many gags in it. And it's also Spielberg produced from a couple of years earlier. Poltergeist, I think, is very much that film. So, yes, very common to the 80s across a lot of different genres. My number three film of 1984 is definitely one where I can't be accused of just basing it on nostalgia because I just saw it a couple of years ago. It is Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense. And as the opening song, Psycho Killer, was my number one Demme moment on episode 634 just two weeks ago, I'm not going to rehash the majesty of the film here, but I'll say this. I threw out the challenge during that top five. If you were one of those people, like I was before seeing it a couple years ago, who never really cared about the Talking Heads and couldn't really imagine a Talking Heads concert doc being some transcendent piece of art, well, I said, just watch it and see how surprised you are. Our friend, Kenny Meyer from Boulder, Colorado, longtime listener, recent live show, Massacre Theater performer, he left us a voicemail not too long after that show aired explaining that he was just one of those people. Not only did he not care about Talking Heads, he always thought they were kind of lame, much to my recent embarrassment, Kenny now admits, because he took the challenge. And we're going to hear a portion of his voicemail here. I didn't get it, and now I do. Um, I've been urging as many people as I possibly can to to go watch that movie. My favorite part about <clears throat> Stop Making Sense is that David Byrne knows when to just kind of stand back and enjoy the virtuosity of the other performers you've got on stage. Anyway, that's enough out of me. Hope you guys are well. So in the full voicemail, Kenny really stresses how much he's been recommending it to just about everyone he runs into, especially fans of cinema, since he saw Stop Making Sense, he described himself as a proselytizer. And Josh, it occurred to me that we've got a top five list coming up soon. We'll have a lot more on it in the coming weeks, but religious experiences at the movies and Stop Making Sense. I'm spoiling my list. I'll see if I can find some other movies, because obviously this one's going in the penalty box here soon, but it's one of those films. It's such a divine showcase of music and joy and expression that you feel transformed watching it somehow, and feel compelled then to share that experience with as many people as possible. And it was funny, because he also references in the longer voicemail the tweet from Scott Tobias where he said something about just daring you to watch the burning down the house sequence from Stop Making Sense and not being floored by it and I think he even suggested not weeping at it and Kenny basically had that response and it's ironic because burning down the house was how I discovered the talking heads when that song came out around this time in the early 80s 
I didn't get it at all. I didn't like it at all. And so I completely wrote off the Talking Heads, despite the fact that Burning Down the House appears in one of my favorite films from that time, Revenge of the Nerds. It didn't matter. I still thought it was a lame song. And that's why it took me until two years ago, or partly why anyway, to finally watch Stop Making Sense. Now that I have, obviously like Kenny, I can't stop talking about it. Yeah, I'm so glad we had the opportunity to catch up with it because I just saw it for our Demi show as well. And it is number two on my list here. It is really that good. I'm not going to spend much more time on it either. If you want more from Scott Tobias and the other Next Picture Show folks on Stop Making Sense, their recent episodes, pair that with Demi's other concert doc, Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids. It's a really good pair of episodes. I'll just point out one bit from Stop making sense that I didn't get a chance to highlight in our previous list, but it's where burn and I forget which song it is actually, but he just starts running laps around the stage. Mm -hmm. And this is a little bit into the concert where you already see the energy level he has. And you think you're going to need that man, (laughs) like conserve some of that, (laughs) but no, this is a guy who's just going to start running laps. And you, you know, I think that does sum up the film in a lot of ways because just the energy and the creativity on display here is, is just boundless. Well, speaking of boundless energy and creativity, a perfect transition into my number two film of 84. It's Amadeus from Milos Forman. Jeff Milo, a listener, wrote in. I'm going to let him do some of the heavy lifting here. I think something should be said for late discovery. Discovering a film on your own terms, decades after its release, when a claim is quieted down and when the mainstream likely shrugs it off is no longer profound and no longer relevant. I never sat down to watch Amadeus until seven years ago. I wasn't aware of its cultural impact or critical acclaim in the year it came out. I didn't have any inkling of what any dissenters might have said. I wasn't prepared for Tom Hulse's dynamite performance and, of course, that laugh. I just immerse myself. Within a year, I owned it on DVD and now return to it at least once a year, almost like a holiday ceremony. It's haunting, transfixing, romantic, psychotic, beautiful, repellent. It's a bit of a bonkers ballet that whimsically wobbles when it wants to, but sutures right back into the serious and somber telling of history just when it needs to. That's very well said, Jeff. The greatest story of envy, a psychological study of two very different minds, the search for what your true purpose is on this earth, and the almost childish rebuke of a creator above for not giving you what you felt you needed to achieve that glory. If you don't put Amadeus on your list, I'll deem the episode mediocre, but I shall absolve you, Jeff says. (laughs) I don't know how I top what Jeff just said or how I really add to it. All I will say is that the themes he touches on there, the rivalry and the whole concept of this compulsion for greatness, which somehow eludes your grasp, is one of my favorite themes in all of art, not just cinema, as longtime listeners will know. I also know that I'm not allowed to talk about this Broadway musical on the show anymore, but if you are a Hamilton fan, I don't think you can fully appreciate the Burr-Hamilton rivalry, though it's certainly different, until you're familiar with the Mozart-Salieri rivalry, and I suppose it occurs to me that I should say the Salieri-Mozart rivalry. He'd want his name first, but also he's the one driving it. Mozart doesn't have any relationship really with Salieri. He's not in his mind or having an impact on his artistic life at all. But it contains for me one of the best music scenes in film history that happens to be minus any instruments. It's a tragic collaboration between the two rivals at the end of the film. 
Start with the voices. Basses first. Second beat of the first. Time. Time. Common time. On A. Second measure. Second beat. Maledictus. You see. Yes. Yes. G sharp. Of course. Yes. Second beat of the third measure. On E. You have me. I think so. Show me. Good. Good. Now the tenors. Talk about divinely inspired showcases of expressions. Mozart's talent is otherworldly for starters, and that act of creation is glorious. Yeah, Amadeus is one of a handful of films that I'm pretty sure I went with my parents, sort of the prestige pictures Mm -hmm. of that era that I was just considered getting to be old enough to be a part of. So I remember seeing Amadeus. I think I would put The Natural in that category as well. And then A Passage to India, I remember seeing. Which I didn't see until I was in college. Yeah, these were, I think, you know, they probably already picked up on that how into movies I was. And I remember feeling like such an adult to get to see some of these. I don't know if it happened exactly in that year. It was shortly thereafter. So I was not that adult, and I did not see Amadeus at all in 84 or around the time it came out. It wasn't until I think high school when I started really getting into films that I sought it out. Yeah, it's good stuff. Not at my number one, though. You know what's at my number one. We just fought about this not too long ago. A Nightmare on Elm Street. The Terminator? The Terminator's number one? No, a previous. A better pick than Nightmare on Elm Street. fight. This is a horror classic. Should absolutely be up there with uh, any list that is ranking horror films. And yeah, we debated the merits of Wes Craven's horror film. I think it was last Halloween for a Sacred Cow review. We're on opposite sides of this. Listeners can check out that argument if they want to hear my defense of it as a surrealist horror landmark. I think the reason this one, though, jumps ahead for me among other horror films, aside from those techniques that I talked about, is just the basic idea that it exploits so well, the vulnerability of sleep. That's a particularly terrifying horror to me, the idea that your body has to shut down at some point, leaving you completely helpless and out of control. I think if you're a control freak of any kind, if you start to think about that too much, you will get a little bit of hives because you just you don't want to give up that sense of control. And then this movie, man, it just eats away at, um, you know, what that actually might feel like. This is probably why the paranormal activity films and I like most of those, I would say they exploit this fear really well, too. So it just hits me in a particular spot. I think it's also incredibly crafted. So, you know, whatever you do, Adam, just don't fall asleep. Duly noted. My number one movie of the year 1984 is one you Gave away a little bit earlier on your list, Josh. I'm going to keep the music theme going. I'm going to keep the religious theme going. When there was darkness and the void was king and ruled the elements. When there was silence and the hush was almost deafening. It was good. 
It was very good. This is Final Tap. I tried to pick out a couple of my favorite lines to just do the work for me here in arguing why this is the best film of 84. I had to give up, Josh, because I'd be here for an hour quoting bits and laughing at myself like an idiot. And I really didn't want anybody to have to suffer through that. It's arguably both the funniest movie ever made and the best movie about music slash musicians, because even though they're a fake band, McKean and Guest and Harry Shearer are all very much real musicians who are performing really just slightly exaggerated versions of real musicians documented in these types of movie documentaries that Rob Reiner is aping. Don't Look Back, Gimme Shelter, among them. I saw it as a freshman in high school, I think it was, and I didn't recognize any of the guys from SNL or Laverne and Shirley with Michael McKean. And I was one of those many, I've seen Rob Reiner make this comment, where it came out and they're so good, even if absurd, that you're watching it thinking, how have I never heard of this band? How is this a real documentary? And then as it goes on, you start to really clue into the fact that, okay, it's made up. It's a mockumentary. But it takes a while to get there. And I think that's one of the real strengths of this film, beyond the humor, the performances, everything you said about how all of that humor, all of those great quotes, they're not because they're punchlines. It's not because they're these really well-crafted jokes. It's because of the little nuances that make Nigel Tufnell Nigel Tufnell. It's the little Mm -hmm. asides that they throw in. I love it. I just simply love Spinal Tap. It's the movie from 84 I can least live without. Yeah, you know, as you talk about the authenticity to it, I think that might be what distinguishes it from Christopher Guest's other work, almost all of which I love and think is hilarious as well. But those are often capital C characters, Mm -hmm. right? And there's genuine emotion and those performers mine a lot out of them. They're not just doing caricatures, but it's not the same as the authenticity that you get in This is Spinal Tap. Those are our top five films of 1984. Josh, do you have any honorable mentions? All right. So if I was going to try to make a top 10, here's what would be on it. You mentioned The Natural Amadeus. Ghostbusters and Beverly Hills Cop, I said I would look for that comedy slot. Blood Simple, The Coen Brothers, if I had revisited that, maybe it would be even higher. Stranger Than Paradise, Jim Jarmusch film, quite good. And then the two I was able to catch up with, both of which I really liked, just couldn't crack the top five. The Brother from Another Planet, yeah, John, John Sayles. Sayles film I had never seen. What a weird little movie. Very yeah. funny. And then Paris, Texas, the Vim, Vim Vendors picture, which I just saw maybe two days ago and honestly am still working my way through. I will say of everything I'd heard about it, I did not expect it to be this gorgeous. Not just the Texas landscapes mm-hmm. at the beginning, but even when they moved to L.A. and these more you know, suburban settings, every frame of this thing. I think the cinematographer is Robbie Mueller, I want to say, just throbs Mm -hmm. with gorgeous attention to streetlights. And again, this sense of fluorescent. Yeah, I remember it. I haven't seen it in 20 years. Vendors America is one of fluorescent signs. Yeah. Yeah, man, the thing is gorgeous. It is. A little bit more on Paris, Texas here in a second. Bear with me as we get to my honorable mentions because I've got a few different categories here. You're not going to read all 58, here. are you? No, no, I'm not, but <laughs> maybe half. My number six, as it stands right now, is the Coen Brothers' Blood Simple. My number seven, the Times of Harvey Milk documentary. Number eight, John Carpenter's Starman. My number nine is James Cameron's The Terminator. My number 10 is Beverly Hills Cop. In the 11 slot, and it could crack the top 10, Purple Rain, 
from Prince, and I could have just gone with an all-music top five, thrown Purple Rain in with Spinal Tap and mm-hmm. Amadeus and Stop Making Sense. Only then I would have had to round out the top five with Rick Springfield's Hard to Hold. Oh, I thought you were going to go back to Boogaloo. Okay, I could go with that, but they're just breakdancers. Hard to Hold is a movie where Rick Springfield played a version of himself, and I loved Rick Springfield in 1984 as a musician, of course. Sure, yeah, I loved I understand. Rick Springfield musically, and I loved that movie, Hard to Hold, which I'm sure nobody else has uttered that phrase in the history of movie podcasts or film criticism. Had not even heard of that film. Okay. My top five of 1984 in 1984. This is always fun for me. Number five, Michael Keaton, Johnny Dangerously. (laughs) Number four, Beverly Hills Cop. Number three, The Revenge of the Nerds. Number two, The Karate Kid. Definitely would have been number two in 84. Yeah. Number one is... Ghostbusters. Yeah. My number one forgotten movie of 84, A Soldier Story. What about Temple of Doom? Wait a minute. No, I'm not a fan of Temple of Doom. No, No, it's like... Now you aren't, I know, but even then... I didn't watch it then. Oh, okay. For whatever reason... would have been on my top five in 84. It's like my Back to the Future weird situation where as much as I love that film, I never watched any of the sequels. sequels. Loved Raiders of the Lost Ark, never wanted to see Temple of Doom. That is kind of weird. So I am... I am odd. My number one forgotten movie of 84 is Norman Jewison's A Soldier Story. And then the top five movies that I think would probably be higher if I had rewatched them recently. In other words, just in need of a rewatch. Streets of Fire, number five. Repo Man, Alex Cox movie, number four. Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise, number three. Woody Allen's Broadway Danny Rose, number two. And Paris... Texas is in that number one spot. I went through a vendor's phase. I'm still a fan of his work for sure, but it's one I need to see again. And we are not the only ones who are fans of vendor's work. Let's hear from one more listener, Josh. Hey guys, this is Julian from St. Louis and I'm here for a 1984 recommendation, which would be Vim Vendors' Paris, Texas. It's one of my all-time favorite films about a man confronting his past. It's got everything. Harry Dean Stanton, Nastasha Kinski, Robbie Mueller as the DP, a European perspective on a particular kind of America, an exploration of man's ability to cope with his actions, and what I think is probably the essential acting piece in cinema, the peep show sequence towards the end. I'd love to hear your take on this one. Thanks a lot, guys. It's a movie that obviously we both need to dive into a little bit further, and maybe that will happen on a future episode of this show. My favorite part of that voicemail, when the listener became Stefan from... Saturday Night Live. It's got everything. (laughs) Okay, finally, Josh, my top five regrets. The five movies from 84 I'm most embarrassed Mm, to admit I've never seen. A tie at number five, Places in the Heart and Top Secret. Number four, The Killing Fields. Number three, The Pope of Greenwich Village. Number two, Secret Honor, the Robert Altman movie. And my number one is Once Upon a Time in America. Mm, That's my biggest regret by far. Yeah, I couldn't get to that one. Broadway Danny Rose, a regret for me as well that I had hoped to get to but couldn't do it. Those are our top five movies of 84. And if you want to revisit that list, you will find those titles over at our webpage, filmspotting.net. Just click on lists. And that's our show, Josh. If you have any comments about the top five or about any other aspect of the show, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. That's where you can also find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And you can vote in our 1984-themed poll. It's a death match. The Terminator versus This Is Spinal Tap. Also, if you haven't already, check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts. We've got The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. You can find those in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Out wide this weekend, Baywatch and Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid or something. You got your ticket already? For Baywatch, (laughs) for sure. 
<laughs> in limited release, Harold and Lillian, a Hollywood love story. There's a great bit of writing about this from Bilga Abiri, the critic for Time Out New York. We will link to it in our show notes. Sounds like a movie worth seeking out if you have the time. On Netflix, War Machine with Brad Pitt from the director of Animal Kingdom. That is the movie we're going to talk about next week and the movie that will inspire our top five military performances. Again, if you have a favorite military performance or one you're afraid will go unmentioned on next week's show, send us an MP3 file, feedback at filmspotting.net, or leave us a short voicemail and we may just play it. 312-264-0744. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant, that's Jeremy Wellhausen. We want to thank Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board as well. And a special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. And where are they now? The little people of Stone Age. And what would they say to us if we were here? Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.